0: Welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. And you are in for a treat today. And so am I, because I'm welcoming back to the podcast one of my all-time favorite guests, Glenn Adamson, to talk about something that, well, you probably use every day. And at the same time, it's one of the oldest crafts in the world. And it's also the medium for some of the most beautiful and intricate objects. And it's used in bookbinding but also in bondage, which we are absolutely going to talk about later. But first I want to introduce Glenn, and if you haven't heard his past appearances on Curious Objects about the California woodworker Art Carpenter, or about Glenn's fantastic book Craft in American History, you should absolutely add those episodes to your queue. Uh, but Glenn Adamson is a curator and historian and writer whose resume is frankly too long for us to get into here. But vis a vis today's conversation, he's the editor of a new journal called Material Intelligence. It's a quarterly online magazine about materials and crafts and how they interact with culture and society and history. So, right up my alley. And I hope yours too. And it's a fantastic premise because each issue is themed around a material like copper or linen or obsidian. And the new issue coming out just days after this podcast is all about leather. From its origins in prehistory and Norse mythology and the hidden wealth of Siberia to Indiana Jones and, of course, Michael Jackson. And I'm not kidding. One of your essays was actually written by the costume designer for Thriller.
1: That's right. Deborah Landis, who I got to know when she curated the Hollywood costume exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum. And she did this fantastic short piece for us, uh, kind of going through a gallop pace of cinematic references and ultimately music video as well, talking about how leather has been used in costume for screen.
0: Okay. But uh, before we get too deep into this, I just want to uh, give a reminder to check out images of what we talk about today by going to the com slash podcast, or of course by reading this issue of Material Intelligence when it's released on September 15th. Is that right?
1: Uh, that's right, right in the middle of the month.
0: Yeah, so that's Material Intelligence org, And if there's anything you want to tell me, uh, you can email me at Curious Objects Podcast at gmail.com, as always. Now, I think leather is one of those materials that is so ubiquitous that paradoxically it's easy to completely overlook. Um, So I want to start with what's maybe a trivial little exercise. Um, Can we just list what you actually make out of leather? So, you know, for me off the bat, it's, it's, you know, shoes and belts and jackets and a lot of apparel, I guess. Um, Help me out here, Glenn. That's right. So,
1: a lot of people will immediate associate, immediately associate it with what's on our bodies. Um, and of course, that is very important, but it has many, many other applications, of course, as well. One that springs to mind for me that you might not think of initially is the belts, not that go around your waist, but that were used in machines for um, a greater part of the Industrial Revolution. So right mm-hmm. from the late 18th century into the 19th. And the sourcing for those belts has a lot to do for example, with the destruction of the buffalo herds that used to roam across the plains. Uh, that was one reason that they were slaughtered in such great numbers. And if you didn't have that animal resource, you wouldn't have had the Industrial Revolution. So it's a great example of the way that uh, when you start looking into materials, the story that you think you know, story of steam and steel, turns out to be a story about hides and blood.
0: Hmm. wow. Yeah, and well, and of course I mentioned uh, bookbinding. There is also... You know, Chagreen, a material that we think of in association with a lot of eighteenth, nineteenth century decorative arts, um, you know, in boxes and caddies, and uh, their their weapons and armor, um, whips. Uh, but now we're getting back into bondage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, but it's um, it's an incredibly versatile and, uh, as I said, ubiquitous material. But I wonder if for you there's a single iconic or paradigmatic leather object?
1: Mm. Well, before I answer that question, maybe I should just say, I'm glad you mentioned chagrin because it points to the flexibility of leather, uh, not just as a material, but also as a piece of terminology. Because basically what we mean by leather is tanned skins, but chagrin is a ray skin or a shark skin, uh, rather than let's say a cow skin or a sheep skin, which is something we might be more useful. Uh, hmm. or they're more used to and um it just shows you what a gigantic universe leather is it's not you know something that appears on the periodic table obviously it's it's a very varied uh very varied um topic it brings you into lots and lots of different areas yeah uh but at any rate i i think if i were to reach uh for just one uh particular uh sort of iconic object it would maybe be the patent leather shoe because it brings up so many Mm. different things to do with the material uh it's so called because there actually was a patent taken out for it uh again in the 19th century and i think most people will know this but what we're talking about is that very shiny uh almost mirror polished leather that seems to speak to a certain kind of refinement uh also a kind of denial of dirt and you know the Uh, whatever's going to be on the ground, you know, puddles, mud, all the rest of it. And the patent leather shoe seems to exemplify the idea of staying apart from all that, keeping yourself clean. So it's very much a class indicator, an indicator of wealth, of course. And what's also very interesting about it is that it's so different from the skin from which it's made, so highly processed. Mm. And what that points to for me is the way that leather mediates between ourselves and the natural environment you know you might compare it to the way that we buy meat in the store you know packaged in plastic and leather does that but in a more permanent and more sensuous way and it does get into lots of questions about why we find leather so attractive um the hidden stories of leather and how it's processed how noxious and disgusting that story really is yeah yeah and um and just tells you a lot about the way that leather distances us from the world not just uh conceptually but also practically of course that's one of the main reasons that we do wear it on our skin is to protect ourselves almost like a kind of armor
0: now you've got me thinking about patent leather what what was the patent actually for the patent
1: was for the process of transmuting the leather into that black shiny uh material so it's a combination of um, linseed oil and other materials that would have been rubbed into the leather um, to make it um, reflective, to give it that kind of uncanny surface. Um, curiously enough, it also is a key uh, material for the jazz age and for early black and white films. And so there's also a very interesting story to tell about the relationship between patent leather and let's say chrome or glass, other materials that are highly reflective and were powerful when you put them on black and white film.
0: Hmm. Okay. So I think it's clear enough by now that leather is everywhere. Um, what makes it worth thinking about? Why did you want to do an issue of material intelligence all about it?
1: Yeah, well, let me back up for just a second and say that the journal itself, which comes out, as you said, four times a year um, and looks at one material each time, has been a, an incredible experience for us to edit because it really brings you into these different deep stories about whole universes that congregate around specific materials and so you know oak brings you to the forest but also to whiskey making uh boat building obsidian brings you to the knowledge of early americans um you know who occupied the american continent centuries ago um and used obsidian as their stone. although it's technically not a stone it's of course a volcanic glass uh, leather is interesting for us because it was the first material we took up that is of animal origin rather than mineral or vegetal origin or indeed synthetic, as we have done one issue on nylon, which is our first synthetic material. So what's interesting to me about leather, and I think what will interest a lot of our listeners too, is the ethical considerations that swirl around it. So it's not inert you know, the origin of it is in a living, breathing, feeling animal that must be slaughtered, perhaps for other reasons, you know, for meat or for other resourcing purposes. But that skin has been on another being. And then when we place it on our own, we're, as I said earlier, creating some kind of implicit relationship that's not entirely acknowledged. So it's highly, highly charged, and that tends to inform a lot of the narratives that are Laid over it, whether those are sexual in nature. You've mentioned bondage a couple of times. That's maybe a good way to approach that topic. But also, when we think about the charisma of a film star like Harrison Ford or you know Michael Jackson in Thriller, there's clearly a lot of energy going on that has to do with the origins of the leather in the skin of an animal.
0: Yeah. Well, so speaking of origins, I I want us to sort of start at the beginning. Um, how how old is leather?
1: Well, leather would be one of the most, uh, ancient of all, uh, materials, uh, and like most materials, the origin of its, um, craftsmanship, its workmanship is lost to us. Uh, you know, it's obviously biodegradable. So unlike ceramic, which is, uh, so amazing and in providing information to us, um, because it's, uh, it, do- it doesn't decay in the ground. Surely leather objects were made for many, many centuries before, Um, before we have access to information about them. But there are prehistoric examples of leather shoes, particularly which are made of a fairly tough um, tan hide uh, that come down to us from all different parts of the world. And uh, even before there are uh, shoes, you would have uh, carrying containers, you know, thongs, you might call them. So straps and um, uh, linear uh, leather elements, uh, which of course would also be used in many parts of the world today. So it's an amazing story of uh, trans-historical continuity, again, like so many other material
0: stories. So the oldest surviving examples of leather uh, are shoes. uh, You think because shoes were made to be tough, not necessarily because those are the first objects made in leather?
1: Well, I think that and also the burial context that you would have, so people would have been buried in them. And so you would have a slightly uh, slightly higher chance of having them preserved than, let's say, in a, a trash heap.
0: Right. So what, what is it that makes leather so good for making shoes?
1: Well, it is its toughness. So the tanning process, and I'm not really enough of a chemist to give you a great breakdown of, of how, this op- how this works, but essentially the tanning process uh, involves subjecting the hide to various chemicals, uh, which reorganize the proteins in the leather and thereby seal the uh, surface of the hide. Um, and what that means is that it's water, water, um, impermeable, which in turn means that it won't decay nearly as rapidly and also is very tough in use. So whether it is on your shoes or whether it's, you know, used on, um, the, on the, on the deck of a boat for various, um, purposes, you know, for preserving food, um, what have you it has a kind of, uh, as I said earlier, it serves as a kind of armor for what's ever inside it, whether that's a human body or whether it's uh, something else that you're storing.
0: Does it have other properties that are useful for uh, as a craft material in other contexts?
1: Yes, it does. Uh, if you think about leather upholstery, for example, uh, leather stretches, uh, much, like some, um, much like some textiles do. And of course, this is also important for shoemakers. So there's a certain kind of um, tension and uh, flexibility and combination that you get with leather that again is very unusual um, and to have that in combination with a very tough uh, material that also can be made in many different uh, ways in, in other words different thicknesses different t- types of finish uh, for ornamental purposes it just gives you a huge range of options um, as a craftsperson almost no matter what application you're thinking about.
0: Okay, so I mentioned Norse mythology at the top, um, and I wonder if you could tell us how leather comes up uh, in that realm.
1: Yeah, this was one of the things that I most enjoyed when I was doing research for the, um, for the issue. So it turns out that um, the son of Thor um, was uh, supposedly a shoemaker, and at the end of the world, Ragnarok, this figure who is called Vidar the Silent, steps on the jaw of Fenrir, the great wolf, and rips the beast in two. And the the quotation from the Prose Edda, which is a 13th century Icelandic Norse um, myth uh, compilation, essentially, about the story says, quote, he wears on that foot the shoe that has been assembled through the ages by collecting the extra pieces that people cut away from the toes and heels when fashioning their shoes. So in other words, he's somehow able to reach across time and space and gather together all those off cuts from all the different leather workers and cobblers, um, mm-hmm. live through time and put them into one shoe. And that's what he uses to step on the jaw of the great wolf and tear it asunder. So I thought that was an amazing story. Wow. Yeah.
0: It's sort yeah. of like the, the leather version of the tooth fairy.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although maybe a little bit more suitable for the next Marvel film. <laughs>
0: yes. I can't wait for that spinoff. Um, but also-
1: so Oh, Sorry, I was just going to say that that also that story also gets to the idea of um, toughness that we've been talking about, talking about, you know, the fact that he places his shoe or boot right in against the fangs of the wolf and it becomes Mm -hmm. almost weaponized is very interesting to me. And it it reminds you that, of course, leather has been very important as a military material. Um, You know, anybody who's played Dungeons and Dragons like I did when I was a kid will remember there's such a thing as leather armor. Um, And that is, of course, a real historical thing uh, leather scabbards. Um, and it's a key material for, um, of course, horse, uh, horsemanship saddles and bridles, mm, and mm-hmm, so on. Mm-hmm. So leather is also, um, although you wouldn't necessarily think of it in the same way that you would with steel, leather has also been one of the most important wartime materials throughout history.
0: So I want to stick around in the North for a little while and, and talk about Russia, uh, and the colonization of Siberia. Um, it, because this is the subject of, of one of the essays in this issue, that there's an indigenous population uh, in Siberia that I think it's often overlooked amongst dialogue about uh, Native Americans and Aboriginal Australians and Inuits and and so on. Um, what, what story does Leather tell us uh, about the history of Native Siberians?
1: Yes, this I thought was absolutely fascinating. It's a contribution from Rose Kamara, who's actually at the Chipstone Foundation, which publishes Material Intelligence Um, And so she tells the story of the Russian conquest of Siberia, probably not a story of imperialism that most American readers are aware of. But one of the main economic tools that they used in that violent, um, that violent intercession into indigenous land was called the Yasak, which is a fur tax or skin tax. And this was collected forcibly from indigenous peoples um, in the, uh, in the Siberian regions such as the Chukchi and the Venkchi, the kanti uh, and the um, the the money was of course important uh, you know when they went on to sell those furs and skins, but it was also a means of purposefully disrupting the itinerant lifestyle of these peoples uh, who were very dependent on the reindeer herds for their own livelihood um, and what's fascinating is that Rose then connects this story to a famous uh, discovery of a shipwreck that was filled with these uh, hides, these Russia leather hides that were um, hand in Russia and then uh, exported. In this case, the ship was on on its way from St. Petersburg to Genoa and sank in 1786. Those were discovered uh, and uh, excavated from Plymouth Sound. um, And then the Leather was taken from the hold from the bottom of the ocean and actually used to reupholster a lot of 18th century chairs and other furniture. I first encountered one of these historic rectal leather hides at the Yale University Art Gallery. This was years ago, but I still remember to this day the intense smell of this Mm. um, material, which had been under the water and it sealed out for 200 years and still had this kind of peppery smell from the tanning solutions that were Mm. used on it. at the end of the 18th century. So, this is a kind of famous story in decorative art cir- circles. But until Rose um, came along to do this research, nobody had ever connected it to the um, oppression of this indigenous population, which is very parallel, of course, to what's happening
0: in America at the same time. Uh, thank God for shipwrecks, right? Such a cr- crucial tool for archaeology.
1: Yeah, not so good for the original people involved, but for those of us who are historians and archaeologists, we can only be grateful whenever one of those. Ships went down.
0: So, we've talked about how ancient uh, tanning and and leatherworking is, but um, can you tell me how leatherworkers today might do things differently from, I don't know, say the Vikings?
1: Well, sure. Uh, And maybe the most important thing there is the introduction of synthetic leather, of course. Uh, So, that's not a possibility it would have existed before the middle of the 20th century. And now you have the choice. Are you going to actually work with a uh, leather skin? Or are you going to work with an approximation of it? And those leather skins are getting more and more convincing all the time, of course. Um, there's a lot of debates about the ecological impact of using what is essentially plastic as opposed to hide. You know, some would say some non-vegans, I guess, would say that, uh, despite the, uh, the suffering of the animal involved, um, it's actually more ecologically sustainable to use animal skins than it is to use plastic simulations. But there's also, of course, just the whole um, question of branding and style that um, has uh, come up for leather designers, shoemakers, um, that's completely different from anything that would have existed before the 20th century. We have a wonderful contribution to the journal by Johannes Lacour, uh, who is a Chicago-based uh, shoemaker and he grew up you know with air jordans and you know leather jackets um very much part of the hip hop community in chicago uh actually learned his trade while imprisoned um and then has made a great career of being a shoe designer and and shoemaker um since his release and he wrote this just beautiful um piece for us about the experiences he's had both as a consumer of leather and also a maker of leather and what you really get from that text, I think, is a, a sense of the um, tremendous investment of imagination and kind stylistic identity that can reside in these objects.
0: Mm. Well, and that's so. I I want to talk about the intersection of leatherworking with other crafts because it's so often used in in conjunction uh, with other materials. Um, and I mentioned uh, at the top of the show, uh, shagreen. <coughs> excuse me. I mentioned at the top of the show, a chagrin, which, um, you know, I'm familiar with, uh, finding in, in conjunction with silver, often in, uh, boxes or mounts, um, where it helps to uh, potentially protect an object, but certainly to accentuate it in uh, different aesthetic ways. And what other, what other kinds of intersection are there with, um, other areas of craft?
1: Well, sure. Shagreen, again, a great example. You might think about it in the context of a sword hilt, for example. I mean, uh, people, if they had run into it outside the context of French Art Deco furniture, where it does appear quite frequently, or, you know, boxes and um, mirrors, jewelry containers, um, you might have seen it on the hilt of a katana, Japanese katana, um, where arguably it looks particularly chic. Um, (laughs) But I I guess another uh, context that I immediately think of would be, again, in, in the um, ornamental trades where you're looking at the decoration of the whole room in leather. And again, we have a, a really interesting text um, in the issue by Ulinka Rube Black, who's a British-based historian of early modern material culture. And she talks about the use of this, um, the, the use of leather uh, wall coverings, essentially, in the Renaissance period. Uh, an art form that's very closely related to book binding that you mentioned before, but in the context of uh, a, a stately home would have been a decorative option that would have sat alongside mirrors and of course furniture and textiles in this very kind of rich uh, immersive interior um, and was absolutely the height of fact in the 16th century. Again, mostly lost to us now because those fashions are long gone. But very, very intriguing, and also a an aspect of of uh, those interiors uh, that speak to the global tastes of the time, because many of those leather coverings would have had a kind of Ottoman or Eastern facing ornamental style, um, and of course the, the disappearance of those leather wall coverings uh, takes from those interiors something of their cosmopolitanism. So it's be, it's really great to be able to reinscribe that into the stories of these houses
0: yeah and I have to say you have a an image of one of these panels um in the issue, and it's really spectacular. I mean, we think of leather i think by by default as this sort of dull uh earthy sepia tone um, but it certainly doesn't have to be that way and in in uh, the instance of this illustration I mean it's absolutely vivid and uh intricate and engrossing um yeah that image for me just opened up all kinds of possibilities
1: and also of course covered with gold and paint so that's another thing we need to remember is that the leather was a substrate you know it wasn't just cool that was also um given this extra surface and rather like the story of tapestry which people might be more familiar with uh you know leather wall coverings were in fact more expensive than paintings (laughs) and so now yeah yeah. our our tendency to value uh you know a, a a Renaissance painting as this priceless object and to think of the leather wall coverings as a sort of you know curiosity it was quite the other way around at the time
0: you know I've actually recently been looking into um, a process in the silversmithing world which involves leather um, which is equal parts fascinating and horrifying which is um, the uh, process of mercury gilding which is oh, when okay. a, a gold wash is applied uh, to a piece of silver. Um, it's, you know, the French call it vermeil. And uh, historically, the way that, that that this was accomplished was by bonding mercury to gold powder, um, and then painting that bonded solution onto the surface of the silver, uh, and then firing it in a kiln. Uh, and the mercury, of course, vaporizes, uh, and is then presumably inhaled by the uh, workers, by the guilders, whose life expectancy was fairly uh, dire um, but then the gold uh, remains and bonds with the silver but to get the mercury and the gold powder to form that bonded solution in the first place uh, th- those materials are actually poured into a leather bag which is then squozing and what happens is that the unbonded mercury actually comes through the pores of the leather mm. and what remains is inside the bag is the mercury that that is bonded with the gold. And so that's what you can then paint uh, onto the object. Um, so not a process I, that I would recommend to listeners, but um, uh, certainly an interesting use of leather in the, the metalworking area.
1: Yeah, it's the, the days before health and safety, right? And, exactly. And this is just one of many stories um, that re- remind us of the hazards of working with leather. In fact, you know, I used to live in uh, an area of London called Southwark, uh, so it's just south of the Thames, hence the name, and it was the area where all of the noctus and dangerous industries would have been conducted, so tanning, uh, hat making, which was also, you know, we also use mercury in that trade, mm-hmm. and then uh, tanning of leathers, tanning of skins, and um, the, you know, it was one of the trades that was put down there, you know, downwind from the rest of the city, so nobody else would have to... Th- smell or think about it and it would would have been a horrific experience to work in a 17th or 18th century uh leather making uh facility but of course that's still true today you know again we easily forget the fact that you have uh not only tanneries but also uh what are essentially sweatshops where leather goods are made like soccer balls uh spring to mind is an example mm-hmm. of that um in places like bangladesh or elsewhere in the subcontinent indian subcontinent and it, it does remain a uh, really vital issue of um, working conditions today. Uh,
0: we talked a little about um, how leather survives through the ages or or doesn't, um, but, but how many leather artifacts survive from ancient or, or medieval origins?
1: Well, of course, it's hard to put numbers on it because we don't know what the original um, quantity was. So, guessing the percentage is very difficult, but I'm going to say that it's uh, one of the areas of material culture where we're unusually impoverished in terms of our information. So we do have archaeological remains, um, as I said, and people will be familiar not only with Viking uh leather remains, but also perhaps Anglo-Saxon other English or early English uh remains. Um, and you know, there's that that thing whenever you go to a historical society and europe you always see a a shoe that's kind of squished flat into a pancake Mm -hmm. but there's absolutely no doubt there was a whole universe of leather goods uh that is uh lost to us and the same of course is true of other organic materials like wood would be another great example you know we can fool ourselves into thinking that people generally ate off ceramics in the medieval and renaissance and early modern periods but of course that's not true most of them were eating off wood vessels it's just that those are all gone so we Mm -hmm. have to Correct for that, um, and then even when it comes to the 18th and 19th century, you know, a lot of that leather uh, will be uh, gone in the way that architecture or um, you know things made of more durable materials are not. So it, it is ephemeral, um, and it's given that it's you know, as I originally said, a living substance. Um, the fact that it doesn't hang around that long seems perhaps symbolically poignant.
0: Okay. I promised listeners Michael Jackson. Um, so let's give it to them. Uh, what did leather do for thriller?
1: Well, what didn't it do? Right. (laughs) (laughs) So this is Deborah Landis's contribution that we mentioned earlier. Uh, so she was, uh, the costume designer for thriller. The music video was directed by her husband, John Landis, a very prominent, um, prominent director they had also worked together john and deborah had worked together on blues brothers and other uh projects of his and so when it came time to design the costumes for thriller deborah thought well here's this guy that i need to make into the most dynamic um presence on screen as i possibly can Uh, but he you know literally had the body of a teenager and it was so slight so small Um, and yet the theme of the uh the theme of the song really demanded something incredibly dramatic. So she basically designed him a superhero costume. And so if, if you think of that jacket, or if you can't picture it in your mind, just Google it, or go to our pages, and you'll see the picture of it, you'll see it has this kind of V shape with these super high shoulders, obviously, it was the 1980s. So that was the look and this wonderful uh vivid red and black color scheme you know constructivist colors you know graphic design 101 red and black the most high impact possible um and it became of course immediately iconic in combination with the you know the white socks and the loafers and the the glove on one hand is probably one one of the three things that people will first think of when they think of michael jackson's image and that um all came from her long experience not just as as a um, making clothes but also understanding how clothes would read on screen um, and sort of support the character arc that was being told in the story and um that you know was was a huge huge success and of course she also is the woman that designed the costume for Indiana Jones who is also very leather intensive
0: yeah so what is it that makes leather so sexy or I mean why is it associated with sexual kink why is it just plain cool.
1: Yeah, I, that's the kind of key question, right? And of course, it's not just those uh, references. Is also if you look back further in time, you think about Marlon Brando on the motorcycle and the bomber jackets of a generation before that. Um, you know, I think it's it's probably to do with the fact that it is a human um, wearing an animal, so it's a skin on skin. So there's a kind of analogy there to something primordial or or uh you know fundamental might be a good word you know body on yeah, body
0: so that's true and, and wearing fur i suppose carries some of the same con- connotations or at least it can
1: exactly and there, there's of course uh, a certain degree of fetishism built around that material as well but i think i wouldn't we,
0: know about that
1: <laughs> but on an even deeper level um Yeah, you just have to listen to velvet underground a little bit more Ben. but um (laughs) the the, on a deeper level the uh relationship as i said right at the beginning between life and death seems to be um, at stake there so here i'm getting a little more speculative than we usually do with material intelligence Uh, but i do wonder whether there's something about the um, preservation of a Mm -hmm. once living skin That gives us some sense of control or a kind of fantasy of immortality, even, or youth um, that might inform our subconscious psychological response to leather. It's certainly a possibility.
0: Well, thanks so much, Glenn. Um, I'm always delighted to have an excuse to to bring you on the show. Uh, Can you give us a hint about the materials you're going to have in upcoming issues?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, uh, this December, we're going to be releasing our issue on terracotta. That will be our first ceramic, mm. uh, related issue. Uh, fascinating look at the global, uh, phenomenon of, um, uh, you know, basically, uh, simple earthenware and what it's, uh, used for from architecture to, uh, tabletops. And then we're going to be looking at paper. Uh, and then also next year, we're looking at, um, sand at steel and at feathers and that takes us through the end of 2024 and after that we'll we'll have to let you
0: know again the website is materialintelligencemag.org the leather issue comes out on September 15th Um, and by the way the the design and illustration for these issues is really beautiful so do go check that out
1: yeah, thanks for mentioning that. That's our, our uh, in-house artist, Wynne Patterson, who does all the design and all the illustrations uh, by hand. And it really is a beautiful thing that she's made. We are looking into getting it printed up, by the way. Um, you know, that's something we've always wanted to do, given it's called Oh, interior. that's exciting. Yeah, so that's another thing people can look out for. But for now, it's available all online for free.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you, Glenn. We'll have to uh, get you back around here sometime soon.
1: Yeah, it be my pleasure. Thanks, Ben.
0: Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati with social media and web support from Sarah Bellotta. Our digital media and editorial associate is Sierra Holt. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm Ben Miller.